Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Jewish megatrends charting the course of the American Jewish future. And I have to start by uh, making an admission, and that is I'm trained as a historian. Uh, and it's kind of cute that people who know me for a long time say, you know, when did you become a Jewish futurist? Which is actually a word. Uh, and, and one reason I became a futurist is because I discovered that the uh, cost-benefit ratio is better <laughs> to be a futurist than a historian. And, and here's why. You know, you may, I'm, it's funny you laugh at this point because it gets funnier. You see, if you're a historian, you can spend 10 years writing, you know, a book or even one article, right? You know, with 150 footnotes for a 50-page article. And if you get one footnote wrong, right, footnote 33 is wrong, the entire historian community jumps on you and say, like, this guy shouldn't be out there writing, shouldn't get tenure, whatever else, and they make a big deal over nothing, right? Uh, but if you're a futurist, I learned this by watching economists and weathermen. <laughs> if you predict the future, they all think you're a genius. And when it goes different direction than what you predicted, you're long gone, you know? <laughs> you already kind of, like, made your impression, okay? So it's the, the cost-benefit ratio is much better to be a futurist uh, than to be a historian. But more seriously, uh, the two inform one another. And it's been my own involvement in the Jewish community that's gotten me to kind of try to rethink the institutions that I've tried to lead. And uh, uh, I've had the privilege of, of starting several different organizations, at Shalom, the synagogue, which I'm still affiliated with. I founded back in 1988. I grew several other organizations. Uh, and in the process, I started the organization not just because I can't get an honest job. Uh, I, I, the last time I applied for a job was 1984. Uh, but I've been fully employed for, over that time, most of the jobs that I created. Uh, so it's not just because, it's just not just an employment strategy, it's because I actually think that many of the institutions that make up the organized Jewish community are not doing their job, not doing the job that they need to be doing. And so, you know, people would say, when people start complaining about Jewish institution A, B, or C, so they'll come back and say to you, well, if you think you can do better, try it yourself. So I took them up on it. So I've been trying to do that myself for the past 30 years and uh, have been writing about that for the past 30 years as well. Some of this, uh, people, how many people have heard of the Pew study that came out in 2013? There's a very important, Pew, the Pew is, of course, one of the big research outfits in America. They're based in Philadelphia. It's interesting because the Pew study came out six months after uh, my book came out. And virtually all the things that came out of the Pew study are already in here. Now, not because I had, I had a fraction of the money that Pew had. Well, is, is zero a fraction? <laughs> I don't know. I, if there's a mathematician, they can tell me. Uh, so Pew is you know, heavily resourced. Uh, and uh, the, the surveys of the Jewish world, we are among the most studied people on the planet. 
for better or for worse. I mean, we just know a lot about who we are, what makes us tick, where we came from, where we're going, a lot of data out there. And I accessed all that data. Why did Pew get all the, the hype is because Jews have always admired things that come from the general community more than things that come from like a Jewish, you know, the American Jewish Committee or even Brandeis, which is, you know, quasi-Jewish, I guess. You know, you get studies from those things, say, well, it's a Jewish study, but when a secular Gentile organization studies the Jewish people, everyone pays attention. And so Pew's being cited left and right, and uh, it's interesting. Uh, uh, but I also have to remind people that while statistics don't lie, statisticians do. And what you do with numbers tells very different stories. Uh, for example, from the Pew study, uh, I always get a kick out of this one. One of the things that came from the study was that people were asked, what kind of characteristics characterize Jews? Like, what do Jews have to have to be qualified as really a Jew, right? Uh, only 33% of the people surveyed felt that you needed to believe in God. But 42% felt that you had to have a good sense of humor. <laughs> now, I would think that Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, would turn over his grave if you saw that statistic, that having a good sense of humor is more important than believing in God. And it may be that this room might actually skew that way as well. I don't know you well enough for that. Uh, but surveys simply tell you how people believe and how they behave and where they go. Um, so I do look at some of the data. I want to share some of what the data tells me. But I, I want to intermix that with a lot of anecdotes because I've been living this, this story not just through data. I'm not, just, I'm not an academic. Uh, I've actually built organizations, and I see what's going on out there. And I want to paint a picture of kind of where, where things are going. And before I jump in, I want to start with this one kind of, not a, I guess it's kind of a disclaimer. A lot of what I'm going to say in the early part of my presentation will come across as extremely critical about the Jewish community. So I, I, I want to start by saying that I would not be doing this work if I did not have the deepest admiration and respect for what the Jewish community has built in America. It is amazing. And because I do a lot of interfaith work, I can tell you that when I spend time with non-Jews, they are in awe of what the Jewish community has built. Our network of organizations, synagogues, educational organizations, social service organizations, philanthropy, cultural organizations, the list goes on and on and on. There is not a sub-community in America that even comes close to what the Jewish community has created. And I think that we ought to take a step back because Jews do get into hypercritical mode very quickly. It takes usually about two minutes, right, <laughs> to get into hypercritical mode. So before we get into that hypercritical mode, which, and I may sound like that in the first 20 minutes of my presentation as well, I want to take a step back and say, we should simply sit in awe and in gratitude for the community and the institutions that we and others have built. It is quite amazing. Which is not to say they can't be improved, and that's what I really want to go with this, uh, about how we make them better. Uh, because the story I tell in Jewish Megatrends is an interesting juxtaposition between a network of legacy Jewish organizations that have been around for 50 years and longer, which are all in steep decline, which would suggest that we are a community that's going down the tubes, but concurrent with the decline of those legacy organizations, which have been happening now for 20-plus years, there is a new phenomenon emerging of new organizations which are mostly off the radar screen of most American Jews, they don't even know about them, which suggests a very bright future for us if we play our cards right. So that's the big picture, and I'm now going to get into the weeds a little bit. And the way I want to organize my presentation is by talking about market and then the marketplace 
and in the future. And what do I mean by market or marketplace? By market, I mean is who are we talking about? Who's out there is market. Marketplace is what is the context, that being the Jewish community and the American setting. And then I want to talk about what I see in terms of the future possibilities going forward. And in talking about market, I'm going to use myself as a, uh, as was called in, in text, a mashal, an illustration. Okay? Because I'm a boomer. I'm 64 years old. And I'm smack in the middle of two generations. And I want to tell a generational story about the market because it makes my point about how much the market has changed for the communal institutions that are trying to address one phenomenon when they're really three different phenomena. Because I am not my parents' generation, my kids are not me, and I'm not them. So what's that? So, so extrapolate from this story, because my story is the story of tens of thousands of Jews of my age, and I'm going to describe two other generations as well. So my parents are both survivors of the Shoah. They both came from Europe. My father actually came to this country in the fall of 1938, two weeks before Kristallnacht. He was born in Berlin. And he came here as a 16-year-old uh, boy when his sister was sent on youth aliyah to Palestine at the time. They didn't see each other from 1938 until 1966. Okay, it was the first time they saw each other after the family was separated. And uh, the remainder of the family was killed in Germany. When my father, my father came to these shores, by the way, on the last successful voyage of the St. Louis. Now, for those of you who know a little bit about Holocaust history, the next voyage came to be called the Voyage of the Damned, because it was a boat filled with about 1,600 refugees from Europe, which came within sight of um, Miami Beach, was sent away, because at that point, the Roosevelt administration decided no more refugees. Sound familiar? We keep playing that story out again and again. We've seen the movie. My mother came here as well, uh, a more circuitous route. She came via Palestine. Her, her, her family first went to Palestine. My grandfather couldn't make it there. He came here by himself, left the family in Palestine, started to make a living, and then brought the rest of the family over. And then the two of them met in New York and got married. When my parents got married and started a family, I was one of three children, they couldn't imagine navigating this new frontier of America but for the intermediary organizations of the Jewish community. That's where they felt comfortable. Numbers, there was, they weren't part of any American operation. They were part of American Jewish institutions. So the synagogue, Hadassah, UJA, B'nai B'rith, is where they felt comfortable with people like themselves. And that was true for their entire generation. By the time I and my siblings came along, America had already changed. It was not we were American-born. We were comfortable with the culture, OK? And so by all the laws of how immigrant communities begin to acculturate and assimilate, those are two stages of the same phenomenon. Acculturation is a softer word. Assimilation suggests already a disappearance of the original culture you were born into, right? But wherever you are in that spectrum, what would suggest, be suggested by what happened with other immigrant populations coming to America in the 20th century, uh, as things became more comfortable, they would start to lose their differentiation from the rest of America. But I would argue that during my generation, several pieces of what I would call uh, heroism, Jewish heroism, is actually what continued to tie many of my generation to the Jewish story. And I'll mention three. Uh, one that happened when I was in my teens, one that happened when I was in my 20s, and one that happened when I was in my 30s. I was in my teens when uh, the winds of war started blowing in the Middle East, and the days leading up to the Six-Day War took place. 
Uh, and at that time, although we continue to hear the phrase, the notion of the potential of anywhere between two to five Arab armies invading the state of Israel, with no evidence that Israel could defend herself, was an existential fear for Jews all around the world. And people forget this, but actually, Israel had not played as central a role in American Jewish identity until after the Six-Day War. It was only on the verge of losing Israel, which many Jews thought could happen, that Jews said, whoa, there's something very central to what Israel represents to us. If you look at bar graphs about philanthropy to Israel, it goes like this after a big jump up. And in the years after 1967, you have essentially a uh, kind of a Jewish renaissance, the growth of Jewish studies, um, you know, Jews wearing Magayim David or putting on a kippah or uh, doing uh, serious Jewish learning, that kind of stuff happens all after the Six-Day War. I remember the days leading up to the Six-Day War. I remember a rally in our small conservative synagogue on Long Island having more people in a rally for Israel before the Six-Day War than ever showed up for a Kol Nidre. It was like something that every, all Jews came out for and made a big impression on me as a, as a teenager. In my 20s, I was actually in Israel on July 4th, 1976, which was the bicentennial, but also an important day in Jewish history. Somebody said here, the raid on Entebbe. Uh, the story that some of you may remember is that a plane was hijacked by Palestinian terrorists, landed in Uganda. Uh, the non-Jews were allowed to go free, and the Jews were held hostage, both Israelis and Jews from around the world. Uh, and for all expectations, there was going to be uh, at least some price to be paid to get the hostages free. And as always is the case in a hostage situation, you're not sure if you even pay the price that you get the hostages free. And then there was this miraculous rescue mission by the state of Israel led by uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's brother, Yoni, who was the only casualty in the raid, which actually flew and saved all these Jews in the airport. How did I experience it? I was on the number five bus in Tel Aviv, the busiest public bus line in the country. How many of you have ever been on the five bus? It goes down Dizengoff and around the circle, okay? During Intifada II, there was, a, there was a suicide bomber blew himself up on the number five bus, which sent shivers down my spine, because I was on the bus every day. I was studying in Israel at that time as an undergraduate, and I had to take that bus to my grandparents' house. Okay? I'm on the bus, and at the top of the hour, when the news comes on, you get these beep, 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 and the bus driver turns the, the radio up, and everyone stops talking. If you haven't been on a public bus in Israel, if you've only done Israel by tourist bus, you're missing something, because what's going on there? Like, everyone has a sense of we're part of this, this enterprise. And what goes on in the news, they're not six degrees of separation in Israel. There's only two. So you hear the news, you know it's affecting someone that you know. And when it was announced that this raid happened in Entebbe, spontaneously, with no one giving any instructions, the bus, everyone on the bus stood up. The bus pulled along the side, and people broke out in the singing Hatikva. Spontaneously. You don't forget a moment like that. In my 30s, I was at that time the head of the Jewish Community Relations Council of Greater Washington, the main public policy arm of the Jewish community. And part of what actually pulled me into Jewish communal life and into the rabbit was a, a trip that I took when I was still a teenager to the Soviet Union. I took one with USY. Uh, they ran a program which they still run today called the Eastern European Pilgrimage. I was on the second year of that in 1970. So now you know how old I am. Uh, and I spent 25 years as an activist for Soviet Jewry. Uh, so why do I mention in my 70s, in, 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 I'm not in my 70s yet, in my 30s, I was then in a position of responsibility for a host of political issues that the Jewish community was involved in, Soviet Jewry being one of them. 
and it put us at the center of a phenomenon which, whose celebration we had about two months ago, December 6, 1987. I'm mentioning some dates that should be Jewish holidays, I think, uh, because we don't have enough Jewish holidays, right? So July 4th should be a Jewish holiday for Entebbe. December 6, 1987, anyone know why that day is important? Okay, so it was, it was the day before Mikhail Gorbachev was gonna meet President Ronald Reagan for a summit meeting in Washington. And when the summit was announced, the Jewish community decided we needed to have a rally to make a statement about our commitment to be in solidarity with Soviet Jews. Uh, I was part of the organizing committee for that rally. Uh, and our best guess was we might get about 20,000 people to a rally, we hoped. But it's always hard to organize a rally in the dead of winter. And this was the dead of winter. That day was about zero, was the wind chill factor. Um, and I remember, I'll remember till my dying day, being on the stage, which was going to have then Vice President George Bush speak, uh, Elie Wiesel spoke, recently released Refusenik Natan Sharansky spoke, Peter, Paul, and Mary sang. Uh, it was happening, okay? And we didn't have 20,000 people. And we didn't have 50,000 people. We had a quarter million people. A quarter million people came to that rally. So much so that it was such an impressive turnout that on the next day, the front page of both the New York Times and the Washington Post led with the story, quarter million people rallied to free Soviet Jews. And it influenced history. Because on that, in that summit meeting, President Reagan said to Mikhail Gorbachev, there will be no trade, there will be no detente, there'll be no peace until you let the Jews go. And within a year, the immigration rates went from the dozens to the tens of thousands. In the next decade, close to a million Soviet Jews left the Soviet Union, and that rally had a direct relationship to the fall of the Soviet Union. As if you don't think political involvement can change history, it did. So I tell those three stories to say, like, part of my life, what I lived and I happened to be by some hand of God, at the center of these three events in some ways, it seemed to me I was at the center of them anyway. It made such an impression on me that I think many of my generation still continue to feel that we were somehow part of a very important arc of history in terms of the Jewish people and its future. So let's go to the next generation, my kids. Generation X, Y, but mostly millennials, okay? Uh, and I've got three of them. I love my kids. Uh, but the millennial generation is actually challenged. And what I want to do is I want to compare the influences, influences on my parents, being survivors of the Shoah, coming here and needing the Jewish community desperately to make their way in America, to my generation was still with living out a story of heroism that revolved around the Jewish people's future. And my kids, now what were the influences on my kids? They grew up during the war in Lebanon, in southern Lebanon by Israel, which became Israel's Vietnam. Whatever your politics are about Israel in the Middle East, okay? It was not a lightning victory in six days, as happened in 1967. It was a morass in which Israel got very involved, and there was a massacre in, in a Palestinian refugee camp called Sovereign Shatila. Uh, it began to change the narrative of the world, where Israel went from being the David facing Goliath to where Israel was being portrayed as the Goliath, who was denying the legitimate national aspirations of the Palestinian people. That's when it started to change, that whole narrative. And so I can go from the 80s on and mention dozens of events that kind of lead to that narrative, okay? I could talk about uh, a, a conference sponsored by the UN in Durban, South Africa on racism, where with countries around the globe having a long list of human rights offenses, China, North Korea, Burma, Argentina, whatever else, the international community concluded that the worst human rights offender in the world was the state of Israel. Okay? Just out, outrage, talk about fake news. I mean, the fact that, and people believing this kind of thing. But more and more, 
my kids' generation grow up in an environment where all the inputs on their consciousness about Israel was not about Israel's heroism, but about where Israel is, at best, a morally complex issue. And what we find among that generation now is that where Israel was once the single most unifying element of Jewish identity in America, it is now the single most divisive element in terms of Jewish identity. And so a large part of the Jewish identity puzzle, which worked for a couple of generations, is now gone and sometimes working against us in terms of creating positive identity among young Jews. So that shows how fast things have changed. That's why I want to start with by talking about market, because you can't be a Jewish institution and think that they can do one program that will address my parents' generation, the boomer generation of my age, and the millennials. We're three different populations with three different sets of assumptions about the world, about our identity, about who we want to be. So that's just, it's not an enviable position for any institution to try and address all three of those. It's not possible, frankly. And it's one of the reasons why I talk about the fact that in the Jewish world today to be kind of very large and draw a big picture about this is that there are at least two major camps among the Jewish people today. One camp I would call the tribal camp, and one tribal what one camp I would call the covenantal camp. Let me say a word about each of those words. Now, when you hear the word tribal, I'm not sure you all think in positive ways. It oftentimes has a pejorative notion. But let me first say that I am a totally tribal Jew. It simply means, the way I use the term is, someone who identifies with the past, the present, and the future of a given people is a, has a, is a tribal identity. And that is who I am. I, I don't make any apologies for that. Okay. And the reality is that the organized Jewish community, in all of its complexity, in all of its ambition, is a community that was built by tribal Jews for tribal Jews. And that may be fine if they all look like me and maybe you. But when you add my children's generation into the mix, millennials, and even those a bit older than my kids who are Generation X and Y, suddenly those tribal totems don't work any longer at all. The reason I use the word covenantal to describe that other camp, that millennial camp, the new generation or the next generation, is because, in fact, their identity is much more global than it is tribal. If you ask a young person, 9 out of 10 at least, and this, the data is all supported by Pew and other studies, tells us that they first see themselves as citizens of the world. And if you try and put them into a box that's labeled anything, whether it's Jewish or you know, name the, name the tribal loyalty, you know, that you like punk music or you like, you know, this kind of dress or you like this kind of uh, art. They say, no, I'm not in that box because they are an unboxable generation. Identities now are fluid. Just look at the issue of gender. Whoever heard 20 years ago that gender was fluid? Are you kidding me? Water is fluid. Gender is fixed, right, isn't it? I mean, I grew up assuming that gender was fixed and so did you. But now we're understanding that gender is fluid. Well, everything is fluid in this generation. Everything is a social construct. So none of our language around, I mean, I, I grew up as a, I was a Jewish educator. I'd worked a lot in youth movements and summer camps. Then I became a rabbi. All the things I was taught and taught to teach are all in categories that no longer work. How can I expect that my Torah, all in these neat little tribal boxes, will connect with a generation who's wired to be not tribal, but to be post-tribal. So, and when people say, which I hear all the time, and it's so erroneous, 
and it's, it's dangerous, actually. People say, oh, it always was that way. Young people, after college, they're going to spread away, and they'll get married. They're going to come back and join synagogues and federations, just like we did. It's not true. It is not, we know it's not true. And people say that is essentially playing ostrich. It is not true. We know it not. Okay? And the reason is for what I'm saying right now. Because the categories that we've been taught to, to uh, convey a love of Judaism, a love of Jewish history, a love of being part of this phenomenon called the Jewish people, are just not categories that the next generation thinks in any longer. But the word covenantal actually has some promise in it because covenantal refers to what we read in the Torah this past Shabbat, by the way, uh, if you were in synagogue. We read Parshat Yitro, Exodus 19, which is the giving and receiving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. Okay? That is the beginning of where the paradigmatic covenantal moment, the point at which something happened at Sinai, which we this is the way we tell the story, is that there was something special that happened between God and the Jewish people in which we got our mission statement about how we were going to show up in the world, how to live a life as a people with some sacred purpose. And the reality is if you look at some of the, the pratim, the specifics of the Torah covenant about what we care about, belief in every human being made in the image of God, belief in loving and protecting the stranger amongst us, commitment to loving peace and pursuing it, a commitment to chesed, to compassion. These are all values that are central to the worldview of the millennials. But we need to find a way, and this is a challenge, and most institutions do not do it well. How do we tell a tribal story in ways that covenantal Jews came here? This, to my mind, is the biggest single challenge that Jewish institutions face today if they want to capture some significant percentage of next generation Jews. So that's the market story. I want to shift now to the marketplace. Again, I'm going to just give you a couple of uh, data points, and you can connect the dots, because there's way more about this than I have time to tell you. But here are a few data points which make my point about the challenge and the decline of the legacy sector. If I start as a baseline, 1985, and that's not totally arbitrary, but I'm not going to tell you all the reasons why I use that at the starting point, but I, I believe this is the start of a, of a change happened in the 1980s. If you look at the Jewish Federation system, people know what the federations are, right? Throughout North America, the federation system is essentially the quasi-government of the Jewish community. And when you make a gift of federation to, to UJA, what was old UJA, now federation, essentially it's a voluntary tax you pay. And I argue, and I believe, by the way, in the federation system, okay? It's one of my biggest gifts every year, okay? I believe that that is the tax you pay for the privilege of being a citizen of the Jewish people. And because I am a tribal Jew, I'm willing to pay that tax, and I do it willingly. And I try and do, give more each year, year, okay? Now, I'm in a minority, okay? I'm in a minority. When the, in the 2000, this is an old piece of data, so you can only imagine it's gotten worse. In the year 2000, which was the last year that the Federation System did their National Jewish Population Survey, they did one in 1990 and 2000. By the year 2010, there wasn't enough money to do it, which is a shame because they're important data points. But in the year 2000, they found that only 9% of American Jews gave, they used as the baseline $100 to Federation. It's a very modest gift, right? Only 9% of American Jews were giving $100 or more to a Federation system. Now, if 
This is not the half shekel in the desert. That the, you know, nobody had an option to get the half shekel to be counted in the desert, okay? But if my model is correct, that that federation gift is the tax you pay for the privilege of being the Jewish people, you get less than 10% of Jews who actually want to be part of it, or willing to kind of pay the dues necessary to make it work, right? It's pretty serious, okay? So with that as background, in 1985, there were 900,000 discrete donors to the federation system in North America, okay? Just count a donor, whether you gave $18 or $80,000, doesn't really matter, okay? And by the year 2012 is my baseline now, that number had dropped by half, 450,000, okay? It's not easy to get the data, but that's the data that's out there now, we know that, okay? And by the way, it's very hard to get data from any given federation about what their numbers look like, because federations uh, are able to sometimes mask the decline of their base by getting their most loyal donors, who tend to be very committed, oftentimes affluent, they can, someone who gave $100,000 can raise or give to $150,000. They're able to do it, okay? And so you can kind of keep, keep the thing going even though the base is vanishing, but it tells a very serious story about the decline of people's consciousness about the Jewish community. Let's look at another piece of the legacy sector, synagogues. Here again, a data point from 2012. A study of all reform conservative synagogues in America found that only 7% of the membership was age 35 or younger. Now, if you were in business and you did a marketing survey of your market, of who bought your, your, your brand, bought your product, and you got that data report back, it would be time to sell. <laughs> okay, there's not much future in a, in a, if, that, if that's your profile, okay? But, you know, we're, we're in this for history. Selling is not an option. It's not an option, so we just have to deal with that number. It's a serious number. Third data point. Back to that Pew study I mentioned earlier. They came up with a strange new category uh, where you got to check a box that said Jew of no religion. That was, a, that was, a, it was never an option before. In many ways, a lot of the, data, the survey of Pew borrowed from other studies that had been done before. But this was a new category, so we've all had to adjust to it. Now, what does that mean? It's actually an interesting category, because I think someone who would check that box, probably you could have like a dozen stories be told by why someone would check a box, Jew of no religion. But I think it mostly describes the people who are called in other researchers' material cultural Jews. Jews who are consciously Jewish, but they don't express that by going to synagogue, joining a synagogue, believing in God, prayer. That's just not part of their recipe, okay? Now let's look at that category. Turns out that one-third of the millennials in the Pew study checked the box Jew of no religion. If you take each age group, each demographic group, we see that that number was larger for as you went from the 60s to 50s to 40s to 30s. Each generation, 10 years down you went, more people checked the box Jew of no religion. Why is that significant? Because what we found was that of all the people who said Jews of no religion, two-thirds of them do not give their children any exposure to any Jewish content at all during their childhood. We're not just talking about bar by message, we're saying nothing. Not a Jewish day camp, not lighting Hanukkah candles, not a Passover, no Jewish content, period, at all. Two-thirds of those households, zero exposure to Judaism. And I'm starting to meet some of those Jews who got, were raised in those households, and they are a blank slate, which, by the way, doesn't mean they're not available to come into the Jewish world. 
They just say like, and sometimes they talk about their lack of Jewish education with sadness. Like I wasn't given anything. Like it may be that when they were kids, when, you know, when, when Johnny next door who was Jewish went to religious school, they got to play and, you know, more time outside and do nothing. So they were happy then. But now they say, I was not given anything. I, I'm, I, I'm an orphan in history. That's a good question. Not literature, not, uh, I mean, what is the culture part? Why do they discuss it? Okay, we need to probe that more because the answer to that is the most shocking number in the entire Pew study. And the reason and that it actually starts to turn the story into a bit more of an optimistic picture, this is the most unbelievable number in the entire Pew study. 97% of the Jews who answered the survey said that they are proud of the label Jewish. In other words, and there... I want to buy some more stock. <laughs> really, I want to buy more of that stock. Okay, and by the way, the flip side of that, flip side of that, that's an amazing number, Me, meaning that you know, I, I, we just did in my shul this past Shabbat, uh, which was two days ago, uh, we did a whole thing about Black History Month, and we had a, a speaker who talked about how hard it is to be raised black in America, where you grow up ashamed of being black, ashamed of being black. You're made to feel guilty because your skin is dark and you come from a culture which this white society has characterized as not worthy of the blessings of America. Okay, And that message has been repeated in a hundred different ways over the course of our 200 plus year history. Okay, uh, Frankly, Jews have had the opposite experience because as, as minimal as the exposure is to anything Jewish, even the extent to which you can learn a little bit about being Jewish by watching a TV show, like over the past 20 years, there have been TV shows where characters are Jewish, whatever else, and you see people who are prominent in public life who are Jewish, whether it's Steven Spielberg or Jonas Salk or, you know, na name the Jewish hero in, in academia and science and medicine and business, whatever else. Jews are prominent, and people identify with the brand, and they say, I want to be part of that. I'm proud of that label. The flip side of that is even more remarkable. There was a study done a couple years ago by two sociologists uh, and the book is called American Grace, the study of American religion in general. Jews are only a small part of that, you know, right? One question they asked in their survey was, what religion do you most admire in America? Judaism is the most admired religion in America by non-Jews, by non-Jews. So you take the 97% of Jews who are proud of being Jewish. They may not be able to say two, you know, if you say, what's the content of it? They may not be able to say two words about that. But they're just proud of the brand. They're willing to identify. And the fact that non-Jews also admire who we are and what we represent, that's not a bad starting point. Not a bad starting point. It's kind of interesting in terms of the marketplace. So that's the portrait. Of, so the portrait I'm showing you of the marketplace of the Jewish community is these legacy organizations are shrinking, dying off, aging, graying. And the younger generation are having fewer and fewer content inputs into what's called religious inheritance, the ability to pass on religion from one generation to the next. What's going on in the American marketplace? Here, I need to hasten to add to Jews, because Jews, even when they are very cosmopolitan, very well-educated, okay, very sophisticated, still seem to think that the entire world revolves around the Jews. And by the way, it doesn't. We think it does, but it doesn't, okay? Because the phenomenon that we're experiencing in the Jewish world is actually a larger American phenomenon. Okay? In other words, there's, uh, here's one big data point. In the 1970s, 
70% of all Americans were affiliated with some house of worship, some congregation. Now, that number is down to 50%. Another data point that you may have heard uh, is that the fastest growing denomination in America today are the nuns. Not the N-U-N-S, as in Catholic nuns, but the N-O-N-E-S. What does that mean? The Gallup studies that were done through the second part of the 20th century and into the 21st century would oftentimes survey Americans and say, and you checked a box, Roman Catholic, Presbyterian, Methodist, Episcopal, Jewish is on there, whatever else, okay? People would check boxes, and the last box was none, okay? So until about a decade ago, that box that was said none was about 1%. The last time the study was done, that number is now 25%. So, and it's, that number has grown at the expense of all the other boxes. So people are saying that in general, they're not just walking away from synagogues. They're walking away from all institutional religions saying, this doesn't work for me. It has generated a phenomenon that's been called the SBNRs, which stands for SBNRs. If you get this right, get an extra brownie. SBNRs. Come on, you can do it. Spiritual, but not religious. So if you read a little bit about this stuff, this again, this is an American phenomenon, not just a Jewish phenomenon, but we are part of it, okay? So you have, if you go to a bookstore, you have a growth of the shelves that are being dedicated to spirituality, okay? And maybe even religion. But fewer people are actually signing up for the product that for generations has been the main product of religion, meaning churches, synagogues, mosques, what have you. So this is a more general phenomenon of what's going on in the marketplace. So that's kind of the, the big picture I'm trying to lay out about what we need to confront. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. The last thing I'll say about the American marketplace is the following. In my view, one of the most dangerous phenomena happening in America for the past 25 years, which in many ways has contributed to the current moment we're in in America today, which I do not think is a very good moment at all, socially, politically, culturally, has been the erosion of the American civic fabric. Now, that sounds like a fancy word, but I'm going to break it down for you. Civic fabric simply means, to what extent are we in this together? Are we in this together? A fundamental concept of American democracy was that we, as a nation of immigrants, would come, we come from nations all around the world with different religions, races, ideologies, creeds, whatever else. There's a belief that we come to a free country, and in the mythic town square, which actually manifests itself in a lot of places, which happened for much of American history. People of different backgrounds and, uh, and ideology would come together to talk about how we could advance the American project of democracy, of respect for individual rights, respect for minority rights, respect for uh, people who are at risk. That was part of the whole idea of the American Republic. And what we have seen over the past 25 years is the disappearance of the American town square the erosion of the civic fabric, and what's been called in some of the literature, social capital. Social capital is the word, you know, you can't grow a business unless you have financial capital, right? You want to start a business, you need a million dollars, $10 million, $100 million, right? Without that initial investment, you can't build anything from it. To create a healthy society, you need social capital. I need to care about you and you and you and you, and if I don't care about you, we can't create anything viable that's sustainable in America. It's all about... I want what's best for me. I couldn't give a hoot about what's best for you. I don't even know who you are. 
or you, or you, right? Social fabric, social capital means that I care about you because somehow we're in this project together. And if you want to understand whether it's the paralysis on Capitol Hill or, uh, or anything else about America, you need to go to that fundamental phenomenon that goes back to the 1980s. Because in the 1980s, you had the publication of a book which actually is the classic in this field called Bowling Alone. How many people have heard of that book? Got a lot of publicity, people use the term. So what, for those who didn't know the book, it was written by Robert Putnam, a Jewish sociologist at Harvard. And it, it, the metaphor is actually quite a powerful one because of all the things that I've given you now to worry about, which will keep you sleepless tonight, what you probably will not lose sleep about tonight is the fact that Putnam uh, uh, documented the decline of bowling leagues in America. If you lose sleep about that, you actually are quite a geek, a bowling geek. And actually, I said this about three months ago, I gave this talk, and somebody in my audience was a bowling fanatic, and he took offense. Yeah, it doesn't take much to offend anyone these days, but he was so offended. But I think I'm safe here. Okay, I don't lose sleep. I'll just speak personally. I don't lose sleep over the fact that there are almost no bowling leagues left in America. Because the title of the book is that where once people bowled in leagues, now they bowl alone. That's the title of the book, Bowling Alone. And it becomes a metaphor for every aspect of society where we've gone solo. By the way, 1985, you never heard of the internet. People didn't have personal computers in 1985. So that phenomenon has gotten simply accelerated because now computers allow us even more so to essentially live a life of total isolation. What was the first thought, who's got a laptop in front of them right now? Only Shmuley. So what we first thought, hold it up for a second, okay? So in the, in, the, in the late 90s, early 2000s, people made that image into an idol. They believed the computer was gonna bring about the messianic era. We're gonna be a, a hyper-connected world, a global village, where everyone's connected to everybody, right? All the people who wrote about that 20 years ago are now reversing fields, saying, oh my gosh, it has actually done exactly the opposite, okay? And it has actually heightened the tribalism of our society because now, because the every smart object you have and you use reads your preferences every minute of the day, results in the fact that your input of information now is more and more parochial, more and more tribal. You don't get exposed to anyone else's perspective on the world because the only way you monetize the free internet, I put free in quotes, it's not free. What seems to be free to you, the only way it gets monetized is that they want you to get click on this site for a little longer, and that is cash in the barrel, okay? So this is what's going on in the setting. So with that by way of background, I want to now talk about why I'm hopeful about the future, because frankly, the picture I just portrayed for you is not a pretty picture, but suggests some negative uh, trends. I actually believe that this moment calls for something that the Jewish people should uh, be able to capitalize on in a very positive way, in a very positive way, okay? And that is how we restore the notion of what I would call covenantal community. Go back to the word covenantal. That we believe that it's possible to create communities where people actually care not only about each other, but also about the society in which they are located, okay? And how we build those communities is, I think, the biggest challenge facing the Jewish community in this day and age. And I would argue that most of the institutions that are part of those legacy sectors don't have a clue about how to do that. Don't have a clue. So we started a project, uh, which I head up now. So uh, decline in legacy organizations. 
What, we found, what we've identified in our work is that there are actually six sectors which at the same time that the legacy organizations have been on decline, there are six sectors in which uh, many of the same young Jews who will not walk into the doors or join the ranks of any of those organizations at the top of the screen are actually creating new waves of being Jewish at the bottom of the screen. And the six sectors are social justice, what I call spiritual communities, I'll say more about that a little bit in a few minutes, Jewish learning groups, eco-sustainability and food. By food, I don't just mean that they eat. But I, there's a food movement going on, local food, uh, locally sourced food, food justice. There's, there's a whole movement and a very strong political conscience around food right now. Uh, spiritual practice, arts and culture. We identified these different sectors and got funding from a foundation to create an initiative called Kinesa, Communities of Meaning Network, which I head up. Now, Kinesa is the Hebrew word for entranceway. If you go into a, uh, in Israel, uh, in the same, where's the exit sign here? No? no? Probably out the door, okay. So most buildings would have a sign which would say exit, right? So, you know, and it's usually lit up. So even if we lost electricity, you could see the sign. In Israel, those signs would say Kinesa, okay? So Kinesa is essentially a word for an entranceway, or what I like to call as a portal, P-O-R-T-A-L, okay? And why do we call the project Kinesa? Because what we found is that in the six sectors that were identified on the previous screen, that these are the new ent entrance ramps for younger Jews who are not going to join the legacy organizations that were created by your generation and mine, but they're going to create new entranceways into Jewish identification in ways that we have never yet figured out, we, we just have not yet imagined, okay? There are five organizations that are actually part of this initiative uh, that work with us, and uh, I want to mention them because they actually represent the various sectors, because our goal, the project is about identifying, convening, and building capacity among this network of young organizations. Now, let me take a step back and then I'll talk about our co-sponsors. When I wrote Jewish Megatrends, I already saw the phenomenon. I was aware of it. I knew a lot of people who were kind of making things happen in these various sectors as social entrepreneurs. When the book came out, it got a, got a fairly wide readership, and people who were in leadership positions in the Jewish community would react in something like this. Sid, very interesting analysis, uh, and the few organizations you point out are quite interesting, but they're clearly a fringe phenomenon which was a way to kind of dismiss the suggestion that I was making that that actually the phenomenon was not fringe at all, but actually large and getting larger. But I need to go out and prove it, which is what I'm doing now, okay? So right now we're involved with what's called a national mapping project, and what started out as about 20 or so organizations in the book, we're now over 200 organizations that we've identified around North America in one of these six sectors. And one of the ways that we've been able to kind of get them on our radar screen to identify them, step one of the project, is by going to organizations that actually have organized those respective sectors. Now, I'd be curious to know how many of these organizations you know of. Uh, and don't be embarrassed if you don't, because these tend to be organizations that attract or are founded by younger people for younger people. When I said before that the legacy organizations were founded or created by tribal Jews for tribal Jews, those you know, you know what a synagogue is, you know what a JCC is, you know what a federation is. These you probably don't know as much about. Join for Justice, how many people have ever heard of it? One, two, three, three people, okay. It's an organization based in Boston, but it's national. That actually trains young Jews around community organizing, okay. Activism and community organizing around justice issues. Uh, 
The Institute for Jewish Spirituality. How many people have heard of that? Two, three, the same three. Uh, it's a group that actually does a lot of work around what's called spiritual practice, okay? In other words, Jews who for several decades would tend to go to an, uh, an Eastern religious ashram to meditate, to learn yoga, whatever else, the people who started IJS, Institute for Jewish Spirituality, said, we have our own tradition, traditions about meditation and, and, and meditative practices, whatever else. And so they create those kind of training programs, not just for rabbis and cantors and Jewish educators, but now increasingly available to Jews who are not professional Jews, but who want to kind of go deep and find out what are the kind of more spiritual grounded practices that come out of Judaism. That's IJS. Uh, Chazon, how many people have heard of Chazon? A few more, for my book, good. So I'm actually now, my project is actually part of Chazon, so I'm very close to the work that we do. Chazon has been the pioneer in the whole eco-sustainability space. They started by doing cross-country bike rides. Now they do bike rides in Israel as well, but very quickly they got into promoting things like uh, CSAs, community-sponsored agriculture, so people would buy, lo support local farmers and buy local produce. Uh, they have a major sustainability initiative all around the country now. Uh, they do an they do annual conference on food justice, which is sold out every summer. Uh, so they're doing a lot of that work in that space. Uh, Mahon Hadar, how many people have you heard of Mahon Hadar? So Mahon Hadar is based in New York, and it's more important for what it represents. Uh, in, for, for many years, for many first generations, if you wanted to do serious Jewish learning and you weren't simply going for a degree, you would you, you go to yeshiva, you know, and be part of like a kolel, a small group of people, mostly men, would study together and do serious Jewish learning, okay? But if you were not Orthodox, there's no place to do that, really. Mechon Hadar has created essentially a, a non-Orthodox yeshiva setting called Mechon Hadar, where people take a year off, uh, sometimes they do a summer program as well, uh, where they do serious Jewish study year-round, and they get a stipend to do this, okay? Unheard of, but very, very popular, and it shows the hunger for serious Jewish learning. And finally, Upstart, anyone ever heard of them? They're based in the Bay Area. Upstart is actually a group that is helping the whole network of social entrepreneurs uh, get things off the ground. So that's what the project is. Um, and what I want to talk now about is the, the key elements of what we've discovered. So what you see up there on the screen now is a Venn diagram of five themes which I argue are the key ways to get Jews to be excited about being Jewish, the key themes, okay? Uh, and the way the different circles overlap and interlap are actually somewhat subjective. When we get together our young entrepreneurs who are creating these new organizations, one of the exercises we have is we have them create their own Venn diagram with the same five themes. And we have about a dozen different models of this, okay? This just happens to be my favorite. But what's interesting about it is that Part of what characterizes these new emerging organizations, what we call communities of meaning, is that they tend to be what I call boutique. In other words, let's go back to our economics model. They're not Walmart. They are like a little, you know, you cannot find a shop that just sells cooking oils. Do they have that in Scottsdale? Like, I, I saw one. I like, who would go? How can you make a from this you make a living, you know, you know, from this you make, or just tea bags, you know, like, like I, I don't understand how they make a living, but anyway, so it's, it's the comparison of the oil, food oils or tea shops to Walmart where you can get everything. The fact of the matter is 
Most of the institutions that make up the organized Jewish community are the Walmart model. They try and meet a lot of people's needs, a lot of things going on. And typically, and this is not really a critique, it's simply an observation, okay? When you try and do everything, it's hard to do anything with great excellence. You need to kind of pitch things to the lowest common denominator because it's about getting the biggest possible market, most customers, okay? That's how it's done. Where if you go boutique, okay, obviously these food oil shops and tea shops have found enough people who are crazy about those items that they can stay in business because if you want to get the best kind of food oil, you got to go to, a, you can't get it at Walmart, you're going to have to get it to, at the oil store, okay? Very similar to what's going on right now. The organization that we're discovering, and we use fairly arbitrarily the year 2000 as a starting point for organizations that started since the year 2000, they tend to be boutique organizations. They do one thing, and they do it really well, and they are attracting younger Jews in ways that the legacy organizations are not able to at all, okay? I want to give you some examples now in each one of these sectors to give you some sense. And I'm going to just go through. So chokmah, which is the Jewish word, Hebrew word for wisdom. So I mentioned already mechon uh, hadar is one example of that. I'll give you another example. I actually don't know whether it's here in the Phoenix area or not. Uh, do you guys have a limud in this community? Yeah. Okay, fine. So limud, next week? Yeah. Wow, okay. So limud, the his quick history about limud is quite a phenomenon. It started back in 1985 in the UK where if you think it's alienating to be a Jew in America between Christmas and New Year's at that time of year, it's worse in Europe, okay? So a handful of Jews in, in the UK back in 85 said, why don't we create like a Jewish retreat during the week of Christmas? Uh, and they started with a small retreat, and now it is the biggest gathering in Europe uh, every, every year for the week of Christmas uh, where they go to a university now. They used to do it in someone's apartment, but now there are th thousands of people. And you go to Limud, I, I taught there a few years ago, um, and at any moment in time, there could be a dozen different courses being offered, everything from Israel military history to Hebrew poetry to uh, Talmud page to Bible study to Rashi to Philip Roth, you name it, you can study it, okay? And it's a learning festival for the whole week, people series about learning. Now, Limud now is an international phenomenon. There are about 85 Limud projects around the world, about 55 or so in North America, the rest in Europe and South Africa, and, and now there's some in, in the FSU. It's quite amazing. I've been to about a dozen as a teacher. And here's what's interesting about Limud, and this is part of my point. As I talk to the people who come to Limud who are very serious about Jewish study, if you, if you use the standard metrics that the Jewish community has been using for 50 years and more that determine whether you're a good Jew or not, which is like, are you a member of the synagogue? Do you give to federation? Have you gone to Israel? And are you a member of two or more Jewish organizations other than a synagogue? Those questions have been asked for more than 50 years. And that becomes the standard metric about whether you're a good Jew or you're an affiliated, which is a euphemism for bad Jew, right? Seriously. If you ask those questions that people go to Limud, the vast majority will check no in every box. What's going on here? Jews were taking an entire week off from work to do nothing but study Jewish texts and sources, deepening their knowledge about Judaism, have n are not part of a synagogue, they're not given to federation, they haven't been to Israel, and they're not part of a Jewish organization. What's going on here? We're looking at a major shift, a major generational shift about how Jews do Jewish. Okay? Same thing for some of these other phenomena. Second example, tzedek. See the box that says tzedek for social justice. No sector has grown faster over the past 25 years than the social justice sector. 
I know a lot about this. My second book is a book all about the social justice sector. It's called Judaism and Justice, available at the counter outside if you're interested. Uh, I ran for 21 years. I ran an organization called Panim, which actually worked with young people building the nexus between Jewish learning, uh, Jewish values, and social responsibility, activism, social justice, community service, and politics. Okay? And we touched the lives of over 20,000 young people over the period of time. And the program not only was successful, but grew exponentially over the 21 years I headed up because that's what young Jews want to do. They want to walk the talk of Judaism. I spent time with, spent a lot of time with younger Jews, and frankly, they're, they don't want to hear another sermon about social justice or tikkun olam from their rabbi. They start to gag when they hear that. They want to do the work. They want to roll their sleeves and do the work. And by the way, I'm with them. Okay, I feel the same way. Way too much talk, way too little action. And the next generation is actually walking the talk. Okay? So let's take the same 30-year period of time when I gave you that stat about the Federation donor base dropping by 50%. I just for, the, for like a little thought experiment, I went to look at the budget of an organization called American Jewish World Service. How many people have heard of them? Okay, that's a, they're probably one of the most well-known organizations, probably because it was headed by a woman named Ruth Messenger for many years, very high profile. She was a member of the uh, Manhattan, uh, uh, the city, city council in New York. Uh, uh, ran, for, ran for mayor of New York, didn't win. Uh, and then she came to Jewish life, and she just had a flair for like building that organization. In the same 30 years, that federation donor base went from $900,000 to $450,000. AJWS's budget went from $2 million to $60 million, six-zero, okay? Now, budgets aren't everything, but they tell you a big story, okay? Because if you want to know where Jews want to park their time, money follows time, okay? You invest in the things that you want to do. And so an organization which, for those who don't know it, AJWS has prioritized Jewish investment in the developing world, not in Jewish projects, okay? They may use Israeli technology to help uh, a war crisis in Africa. That they do a lot of. But all their work, all their beneficiaries are in the developing world with non-Jews. And by the way, take it personally, my daughter, when she graduated college, spent a year as a World Partner Fellow with AJWS in India. Okay? And by the way, the other 12 fellows on her program, this, is, this typifies it. You know, there's a danger of anecdote, but it also helps to make it very real. Comes the first Shabbat, none of the 12 people in the group knew what Shabbat like what she did on Shabbat, except my daughter. So she became the rabbi of the group. Surprise, surprise. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. But the point is, why did these, these young people had a chance to do a similar kind of work in the developing world. They had a dozen choices of non-Jewish organizations. They chose to do it with American Jewish World Service. Something, and that I suggest is about that 97% number, okay? The doctors now should be connecting your brain, okay? Why did, what's the 97% number? There's a very positive orientation to that brand, okay? So the same, so the kid who's raised in the home of Jews of no religion, got no exposure to Judaism whatsoever, goes to college, gets out, says, I, want, I don't know what I want to do with my life. I'm not ready for grad school, I'm not ready to go to law school, medical school, I want to do something to give back to the world. And they want to do something, and they look at options, and they look around, and hey, I could do the Peace Corps, I could do VISTA, I could do, there are all kinds of programs to do good work, but they chose the American Jewish World Service because there's a very good affinity to the notion of something Jewish. There's something going on here that's very important. You gotta connect the dots. Because if you look at it in too simplistic a way, you suddenly decide the Jewish community is falling apart. 
And by the way, there, I could mention many other organizations in that FedEx sector that are growing quite successfully. And that includes the eco-sustainability sector, okay? I don't know about where you hang out, okay? In my own congregation, I can identify at least a half dozen young people who are my children's ages, in their 20s, whose career goal now is to become a farmer. You never would have guessed that 30 years ago. You wouldn't have, but went, you know, you wouldn't have taken odds 50 to 1 to bet 10 bucks that's going to happen. What's that about? Okay? There's a whole reorientation among the next generation about what it means to live a sustainable life. How many people know about the Jewish community of Vineland, New Jersey? Wow, how do you know about that? Okay. So at the same time, it's an amazing kind of, yeah, farmers and nurses. At the same time that, that tens of thousands of Jews went from Russia to Palestine in the Zionist movement, in this back to the land movement, which is what Zionism was largely about, Jews should do productive labor and not just be money lenders and traders and business people, okay? Some Jews went to New Jersey and they created a Jewish colony in Vineland, New Jersey, which functioned for about 40 years. There were, there were about 50 farms, Jewish farms, in southern New Jersey, in Vineland, New Jersey, kosher poultry, the whole bit. It's a whole kind of thing going on. Now, I'm going to flip you up right now. In my next conference for Kenisa, I found a guy who was the great-grandson of one of the founders of that alliance community in Vineland, New Jersey, who now has gone back and bought the acreage up and now is inviting young Jews to come and resettle the area in Vineland, New Jersey to create Jewish farms in that area. This is the new Jewish world. Welcome to it. Welcome to it. Kehila, the idea of community. What's going on in terms of community? Here you have Jews who actually want to live together, this whole idea of social capital. People feel the isolation about what it means to kind of, like, here's my best friend. You know? You walk down the street, people are like this, with the earplugs. There's no connection, right? People are keenly aware of it. And, and there's a lot of data now coming from the helping professions, from uh, therapists and social workers and the like, saying, People who are so unconnected from other people actually don't thrive. To thrive, you need human connection. And so more and more young Jews are trying to find ways where we can live in community. That's why you have the phenomenon of Moshe House. Who knows what Moshe House is? Okay, get, you guys are getting with it now. Moshe House is, again, amazing phenomenon. started small. It's a recent thing, only 10 years old or so. Moshe Houses are little houses. Sometimes they're big houses. Supported by this foundation where young people, when they leave college, like my daughter went to India, but what if you don't want to go to India? You could actually move into a Moisha house. They're, they're usually in really hot urban areas, okay? Frankly, most of our kids can't afford to buy an apartment in San Francisco when they got to come out of college. They can't afford it, right? But there's a Moisha house in the Bay Area. They can move into the Moisha house. They're paying about a third of the market rate on rent. All that's expected is that they're going to live with somewhere between five and 10 other Jews, and they need to do programming for other Jews, and it's not coming from like some rabbi or educator. The Jews who live in the house create programs for other Jews, peer-to-peer -peer Jewish programming. The same thing is true about how many people have heard of One Table, an amazing project coming out of New York. One Table now is actually helping to fund Shabbat dinners all across America, okay? You want to invite 10 other people for Shabbat dinner? You can get funding to help do that and training about how to make a Shabbat happen because if you're part of that group of Jews raised in a household of Jews of no religion, you don't have a clue about how to do Shabbat, but you hear about one table and say, and by the way, Shabbat is cool again. Shabbat is so cool that there's a project called um, the Sabbath Manifesto. Anyone ever hear of this? I'm telling about all these things you guys don't know about, okay? But there's a whole world out there. The Sabbath Manifesto 
came out of a group called Reboot, out of the Bay Area, okay? And it's not just for Jews. They have 10 principles of what a Sabbath manifesto is, which is so hot out there that at the South by Southwest Festival in Austin that happens every March, okay, there's a table that's run by Reboot for people to sign up to the Sabbath manifesto. What does it say on there? Have a communal meal. Drink wine. Be with friends. Spend time in nature. Disconnect from your, from your smartphones. These are the, they're not reading from the Torah here or from the Shulchan Aruch. They're creating basic principles about how do you restore your soul in a world that's become so, you know, you know, so disconnected in that way, okay? And so now, I did a conference two months ago, uh, about 120 young social entrepreneurs. Only about 15 of them were Jewish, okay? Most were Gentile, handful of Muslims as well, and a couple of Eastern Hindu, Buddhists, whatever else, okay? I did a whole program on Sabbath praxis with them, which they were hungry for. They were not Jews. They said, tell me how I can bring into my life some kind of practice of Sabbath because I need it desperately, okay? So this whole notion of kilah is actually very resonant with this next generation, creating new kinds of forms of kilah, or what I would call karenza community. And finally, yitzirah, the idea of creativity. Again, I, I told you I spent the first part of this presentation on all the things that are in decline. You want to see what's growing? Jewish film festivals, Jewish music festivals, Jewish art. Unbelievable, okay? Young Jews are finding ways to express themselves and their identity in Jewish ways through the arts, okay? So we're bringing these folks together to kind of like reinvent the Jewish world, and we're saying to them, this is that we honor your path. They're creating a Judaism that we won't recognize. But what I want to suggest in this context, okay, is that instead of deciding that because the metrics that we've been using for 50 years are all in the decline, it would be mistaken to say that the Jewish community is, is falling apart. It's reinventing itself. But we need to make more space to allow these redefinitions of Jewish life to emerge and to flourish, because it is changing in a way that I think is meant to be changed. I'll just end by saying this. You know, there's a, uh, maybe inspired by this week's Torah reading of the receiving of the Ten Commandments. If you're, if you're traditional and believe very literally in, in, in the Bible uh, as is written, you know, you may have the belief that God gave the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai to the, to the Jewish people, to Moses, who brought it down and gave it to, to, to the Bene Israel. But in a lot of theology, there's a concept called continuous revelation. Okay? Whatever happened in Sinai, whether the version I just articulated or something else, or maybe you thought nothing happened there. Well, some number of people thought something happened there because it was been written about for a long time. Something pr pr profound happened at Sinai, even if we don't know what it was, okay? But the idea of continuous revelation is that it is upon us to continue to see what, what that which started at Sinai, this idea of living a covenanted life, a life with some sacred purpose, which is what we call the big box, Kedusha, sacred purpose. And the reason that's the largest box, which is why I like the Venn diagram the most, is because every one of these paths is a way that young Jews are saying, we want to find our own sacred path. And we're totally comfortable with it being Jewish, okay? But we're going to define what that's going to look like. And I would suggest that we actually are living through a moment when we are receiving Torah again. It's being, the revelation is revealing itself to us. And we in the Jewish community need to make space for that phenomenon and to find ways to partner with these organizations and to not give them the, the same kind of litmus tests 
litmus tests that we so often do in the Jewish world, but rather to learn from them. Uh, I, the, the, the most rewarding parts of my work right now is when I work with people who are leading mainstream organized Jewish institutions, and I bring them into conversation with people in my Knesset network, and I say, you both have a lot to learn from each other. Because the young folks can tell you how to capture a generation that you older folks or tribal folks don't have a clue how to reach. And conversely, the younger folks can learn a lot about how to build, sustain, fund organizations because unfortunately the fail rate of these young entrepreneurial groups are gonna be very, very high. They're mostly under-resourced. They're not very sophisticated about how to build things. They're passionate, but passion doesn't pay the bills, okay? Passion is a starting point, it's not a, it's not a strategy. So, I, so the reason I kind of, I, I, I play Johnny Appleseed dropping the little seeds of ideas out around the country is because I think Jews who care about Judaism and the Jewish community need to understand what's going on, they need to find ways to ally with this phenomenon and realize that we were actually, not only are we not, are, are we not in decline, I believe we're on the cusp of the Jewish Renaissance. If we can find the proper ways to mainstream these phenomenon, to support these groups, to bring them into our institutions and allow them to flourish on their own terms, not on our terms, but on their terms, we will experience the Jewish Renaissance that we deserve. Thank you. What is the future of the synagogue is the question. So uh, I spend about half my time running the Knesset project. The other half of my time, I run a project called the Clergy Leadership Incubator. Uh, uh, Michael uh, is, I'm blanking on your last name for a second, Michael. <laughs> I'm sorry, Rabbi Michael Wasserman is actually part of our national mentor team for our Clergy Leadership Incubator program. Right, 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 yeah. Uh, Dean, I, I didn't recognize you at first. It's the mustache. Oh my gosh, good to see you, Dean. Oh my, I just like had this, how could I not know who was in the CLEAP program? I didn't recognize you. Good to see you. Um, so Dean was a, was a fellow in the CLEAP program. Michael's been a mentor. Uh, we work with rabbis to help them kind of rethink what synagogues need to be doing, okay? Because frankly, the program that synagogues have right now will not survive into the next generation, okay? There's got, so, Part of that is, is essentially trying to think outside the box and kind of reinvent what the synagogues are. But not only do I, I don't think, it, we're not in a better place if synagogues across America started to fail. That does not put us in a better place. It puts us in a worse place. So my interest is how do we get synagogue leadership, rabbis and their boards, to kind of open themselves up in ways to allow these phenomenon in. There's a, um, and it's already starting to happen in some places. The best. Uh, illustration I can give you is that there's a upstart independent minyan that started in Chicago called Mishkan Chicago. Started by a young woman rabbi named Lizzie Heidemann. She's been extremely su successful. But when she first landed in Chicago from the West Coast, uh, she didn't have two nickels to rub together. How is she gonna make it happen? Turns out that there's one conservative synagogue and its rabbi, Michael Siegel, who's the rabbi of Anshay Met in downtown Chicago, a very major conservative synagogue. He, knew, he met Lizzie and he says, you know what? We used to have big attendance on Friday nights at Anche Met, but we don't get anyone anymore. You're welcome to use my building on Friday nights for whatever you want to do for your people. No rent, nothing, okay? Now, what happened as a result? So Lizzie took, up, took him up on the offer, and at a time when she didn't have enough money to pay rent for some space, she had 
not only a space, but a space that was recognizable in the Jewish world. And she attracted all these young millennials to come to Friday nights. Now, after several years, she actually did not want to be married to Anshay Ahmed. And so she broke away, and they use that space occasionally, but she, part of her concept is to keep moving the thing around the city in different places, including non-Jewish spaces, because a lot of these young Jews are actually anxious about moving into a Jewish space with a Jewish sign on it. They're more happier to go to a, you know, to a nightclub or, or bowling, uh, bowling's alley, thank you, <laughs> whatever else. And, I, and by the way, there's some rabbis who are now doing you know, stuff in, in bars and pubs for, for Shabbat. You, you know, you gotta find alternate spaces. So that's what it looks like when I say the future of the American synagogue, there are partnerships to be had, but a lot of work to be done to kind of get synagogues to be more open to that. Dean, you wanna add anything since you've been through the program? No? Yeah, please. Which community? Here. Here, okay. We also founded one of these new boutique organizations okay. uh, in our later life, uh, the Jewish Genetic Diseases Center that does prenatal screening uh -huh. for, for Jewish couples. Um, I chaired the 89 campaign of our federation, and we raised over $5 million. In today's dollars, that would be somewhere between, what, 12 and $15 million? Mm -hmm. Our last campaign raised a quarter of that. Mm. The federation that I was a president of does not work today. It worked in 1990 and 91. Right. But as wonderful as all of these boutique organizations are, and as ways, non-threatening ways for people to connect to a Jewish community uh, that can be intimidating if it's all large umbrella organizations, we still need these large yeah. organizations when we need to come together as a whole community for a challenge, for a celebration, to deal with a crisis, whatever. So how do we move from the old-style federation, which was give me your money and we'll tell you what we're going to do with it, um, to an organization that people who are connected to boutique organizations still recognize as valid and still want to connect to? Yeah. It's a great question. I'm not sure I, I can repeat it all um, for the for the... For legacy, but the question in short, for those who are listening to this at some future year, uh, is how do we get the younger Jews who are connecting to the boutique organizations to care and value these umbrella organizations, which we still do need, even as they are failing in some way? Uh, I don't have a simple answer to it. I really don't. Um, and I would, I would be the first to admit that in the, if you stack up a sampling of tribal Jews with a sampling of covenantal Jews. Um, one group is pre-committed to the Jewish project, and the other sample is potentially committed to the Jewish project, okay? So going forward in a moment of crisis, you and I both know who we're gonna go to first. We're gonna go to that first camp because they're prior committed. And I don't know what it looks like to kind of get that generation of Jews who are very entitled and have been made to feel even more entitled to kind of take on the obligation that your generation took on. I mean, I have a, as much as I'm a fan of Birthright Israel, I, in the book, criticize them for making an entitled generation even more entitled by giving away a free trip where we teach the very wrong lesson. So yes, they got excited about the state of Israel, which they never would have visited if it would not be free. Mm -hmm. 
okay? But by not asking for anything on the front end or on the back end from the young people, how, do, how are you teaching a sense of obligation, a sense of giving back, a sense that nothing, that nothing in life comes to you free on a silver platter? Uh, so I think that it's, it's, along with the good, there is that kind of negative consequence of the way we've developed birthright. Uh, the philanthropists thought that was the way to go. So I don't have a simple answer to it. Uh, it's a question that we talk about when we gather all the time. Uh, interestingly enough. Well, if you don't have the answer, do you have a path to the answer? Yeah. This is why I think that if we can be successful in our next phase, part of what we're going to be putting more time and energy around is to try and create the kind of partnerships that I described that happened in Chicago. And we had nothing to do with that in Chicago, and that's simply an illustration. I know both people, and I know what happened, and I know what that might look like, okay? But we're now kind of thinking about what it would look like to seed a dozen or two dozen such partnerships around the country, partnering legacy with an with a entrepreneurial organization, and if that has some success, that may be a way to kind of make it seem okay. Uh, in other words, make the legacy organization not as off limits to the next generation, which is very ambivalent. One of the most biggest surprises to me when we got a couple years into the Kinesa project is that I thought, I expected that most of the entrepreneurs who were starting these organizations were going to be from among the nuns. And I was wrong about that. When we did a study of them, we found that actually they are our best and brightest. They're kids who went to our day schools, to our Jewish summer camps, to our trips to Israel. They're the ones that we invested the most in. And here's what happened. When they hit their adult years and said, how am I going to show up in the world? There's something about their upbringing that made them want to do something in a Jewish key. But they had deep suspicions about the institutions that they benefited from. They weren't prepared to park themselves in those places, take jobs with those. That would have been an option for them, right? But as opposed to like, you know, working their way up the ladder to, be, to work in a synagogue, to work in a federation, they started their own thing. And so they have this love-hate relationship with those institutions. So I think, which by the way, is not unlike child rearing, <laughs> right? Ch child, it's the same thing. I'll do, you know, psychology 101 for ch child development. We know that, you know, you, when you're born, you're in a state of total dependence on your mother for sure, and usually both parents, okay? And you, as you grow up, what psychologists call, there's a process called individuation, where you are not simply an appendage of your mother and father, but you become your own person. Now, oftentimes, somewhere between, you know, teen years and 20s, you know, there's a period of pushing away, which sometimes is more violent, sometimes softer, but it is about... Psychologists say it's a healthy phenomenon, okay? If you don't go through that, you wind up being 40 years old and living in your mother's basement, okay? That's not good either, okay? But the process of pushing away is to say, like, who am I that is not my mom and dad, right? That's very healthy. The, the final phase of life is that after you do all this rejection, you find that there's like a coming back of valuing the things that the parents actually put out there. And sometimes the more strenuously you push it away, the quicker you come back. I mean, as a rabbi, I've seen this happen, unfortunately, oftentimes around death, right? So at the, you know, around the death of a parent, a child starts to see the things that they valued and treasured about their mom or dad who passed that they actually embody in many ways, but they never want to admit. And they start to own it in a way with far more pride and more love than may have ever manifested itself in real life. This is, you, this, we're, talking about, we're talking about human nature here, okay? And I would suggest that the same thing happens in the organizational sphere, that 
these children that grew up in the institutions that, that we've created in the 20th century, okay, have this love-hate relationship as well. They need to essentially go off on their own to find their own way to do Jewish. And I think that there's an opportunity to bring them back because there are things about that they still treasure and value. But in the same way that there's no one roadmap back for any one child of a household back to reconciling with family and with parents, there's no one way, one path back that way. But I'm, we're well aware of the phenomenon, and I think the ingredients are all in place to kind of piece that together, and that's what we're working on. I have a, a slide over here, and I see this wheel. I, I'm concerned that what we are perhaps encouraging is a wheel that spins faster and faster and faster, and what happens when the wheel spins faster and faster is we spin off, centrifugal force spins us off away from each other. And contrasting with what you were trying to gain when you're talking about technology separating us from each other. Uh, and in a sense, there's a risk, I think, that the Kinesan that you're talking about becomes a yitziyah, becomes mm. an exit. You roll away from everybody because you've spun off in your own direction. You spoke of Revelation at Sinai, 600,000 standing together in, in, in one mass uh, identified group. Uh, following the Exodus, and, and you spoke of continuing revelation to a generation that has spun off and we're widely separated geographically, philosophically, we're, we're, we're all over and have our own, our own revelation. We don't have a common Sinai revelation anymore, and I'm concerned for that, and the loss yeah. of a collective tribal identity. Okay, great question. So the question in summary is, uh, is there a danger that these small groups will spin off and centrifugal force will push them further away from the center, and they're not working together. So um, this is a true story, because I think the opposite is happening, and I'll tell you why. We, part of what I, when I bring these folks together, they're not sure what they have in common with the people from the other sectors, because they're working in one sector, and they've got both the assets and the deficits of being myopic about their, their agenda, their their mission, okay? We do this, we care about this exclusively. I don't care about what you're doing or you're doing. It's very tunnel vision kind of like, which by the way characterizes most entrepreneurs. You've gotta be laser focused on your mission, right? The reason we put this piece out there is that I propose to them that they actually have more in common with one another across sectors than they imagine. And I kind of lay that out in certain ways. And I raise the possibility about that if, for example, you're a group that's committed to social justice and you attract a lot of people because they care just about that, what would it look like if you incorporated one of the other themes into your work? I don't say you have to do that. I don't say that you'll fall apart if you don't do it. I just kind of want to say the following. If I'm right that the major way the younger Jews will identify with Jewish entities in the future will be through these boutique organizations and not through the legacy Walmarts of the Jewish world, okay? While the success of the launch of the group may be focused on being laser focused on mission, the people that they address have, are multidimensional. They're not one dimensional. And so the fact of the matter is, this Venn diagram represents a variety of ways that Judaism has helped people create a more rich and flourishing life. So we did an exercise around this. I put the idea out, we wrestled with it for the whole time we're together. That's the whole reason we're doing this stuff. So we did a, an exercise we should do every time we get together where every organization in the room gets a number. Uh, and we have two big boards up front with this Venn diagram. And we ask them to do two things. We say, first, plot yourself 
on the first Venn diagram about where you currently are, both individually and as an organization. And then on, and then on the same, I'm sorry, the same, uh, same uh, diagram, draw, make that a round circle with a filled in the dot, then draw a line to the place where you'd like to be three to five years from now based on whether you want to incorporate one or more of the other themes on the, on the, on the, on the Venn diagram. And in another slide deck, which I don't have with me here today, I can actually show what it looks like because slide one is the full dots where a lot of them are in very unique, discrete theme areas. And the second dot, they all move towards the middle. They're all looking for ways to try and incorporate other elements of being Jewish into the work they're doing. And I have some very specific examples of that. At our first conference, we had a, a woman who leads an organization called Bend the Ark, which is doing some really cutting edge social justice work in the Jewish community. Three months after our first conference, they had their first national conference. And every session began off with a Jewish teaching, which I am convinced, and she would say, by the way, would never have happened had she not been in our space. In other words, it wasn't that I had her do it. She got this idea that wouldn't this gathering for social justice be a richer experience if before we started talking about a living wage campaign or how this country deals with refugees or how we deal with uh, racism in America, all issues that are high on their agenda, what would happen if a Jewish teacher would get up and offer a teaching that would inform that activism? So I actually think there's an openness to kind of like feeling the richness of, that, of, the, of the Jewish wisdom that we've inherited over the generations. So I'm far more optimistic about that. Your wife's question I'm a little bit less certain about. I wish I could give a more certain answer. And invite me back in five years, and maybe I'll have a better answer. Maybe but to, <laughs> Maybe you'll figure it out. Maybe you'll join my team. Uh, but to, to your question, I feel much more confident, because I think there's really a desire to, to have more integration in this work. It's more, it's more gravitational force, it seems to me, yeah. than uh, the centrifugal force. That's what I'm what saying. Yeah. Thank yeah. you, Rabbi My pleasure. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to, please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.